Hi everybody, this is Afro Leads the podcast. As you know, Afro Leads consists of two sisters, myself Steph and my sister Julie, and we are on a mission to promote Black British business and culture. At present, we have multiple social media platforms, our most dominant being Instagram, where we post positive posts and features about Black business, groups, communities, celebrities, music, and so much more. Today, we are joined by Neil Brewer, also known as the Scotch Bonnet. He's an incredible photographer with an exceptional ability to focus on people. If you've not heard of him, where have you been? His amazing style and skill of using both analog and digital cameras to portray both philosophical intrigue and visual poetry is insane. We feel privileged to shine a light on his sophisticated, educated and melanated journey. Born in Scotland to a Ghanaian mother and an Aberdonian father, he was raised in the suburb of Glasgow's South Side, where he grew a bountiful Afro in preparation for attending Edinburgh University. His education was vast, seven years of legal study, after which he took a year long break to travel around the world and take photographs. It was on these travels that his passion for photography firmly took hold. When he returned to the UK, he qualified as a solicitor in London and went on to practice for two years. However, knowing that he wasn't satisfied, he searched for more and left law in 2015 to pursue photography and writing. It was soon afterwards, in 2016, that he reached the quarterfinal of the Sky One Arts TV talent competition, Master of Photography, and this king found his calling. He's been glued to his camera ever since. What a journey for a guy that was gifted his first digital camera for his 18th birthday by his beloved granny. Keep shining and inspiring, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. But it's funny hearing uh, hearing the <laughs> summary like that. <laughs> Thank you for Thank you for coming. And we know it's not all you're a poet, director, writer, film reviewer, so you know, we'll hopefully get into all of that as we go into our conversation. Yeah. But welcome to the podcast. How has everything been going? How have you found um well, 2020 lockdown, the start of 2021? <laughs> yeah well thanks for hiring me it's great to meet both of you and yeah 2020 uh funny year obviously in the end I found it was quite a good year you know I didn't have any I got COVID in November but it wasn't um bad so in some ways that makes everything that comes after a bit easier because you're you can kind of walk around and feel a bit more secure but apart from that you know I did a lot of self-reflection and all that kind of stuff that you try to do when you're stuck inside and you know I ended up the year feeling pretty good and quite positive about next year vaccines coming and everything so hopefully hopefully uh you know the future is pretty bright but uh but obviously we've got to get through a bit yet but you know I hope everybody's doing as well as they can you know that's the only thing we can hope for really absolutely no we're the same I think it's that mindset. I think every day I just try and think, do you know what, we're still here and, you know, like you said, the future's looking brighter with the vaccine, etc. But yeah, I'm sorry to hear that you'd caught it last year. That must have been awful for you. But like you say, thank, thankfully it wasn't too serious. Yeah, it was weird, you know, obviously you hear about it all the time <laughs> and then you get it. But obviously so many people have had it and mm. if you don't get it too badly, then, you know, you can just, all you can do is be thankful that it... Mm-hmm. You know, my girlfriend lost her smell for like a week, not six months or something. You know, it, it's you just have to hope that if you do get it, it's it's not too bad. So for us, it wasn't. So, you know. Good. That's so good. Yeah. So 
let's just for, for myself um, as I mentioned earlier to Neil before we started recording that my sister and I are big fans Julie actually highlighted your profile to us a couple of years ago and the more and more we sort of start well, I don't want to use the term stalking but started to see <laughs> the things okay. that you were producing <laughs> okay I'll say stalking um yeah. we were we were like we have to one you know post about him but then two obviously get you onto the podcast so this is an absolute honor I suppose I want to just dive straight in and ask about your upbringing really because there's so much out there about what you do now and as Julie sort of mentioned into the um in the intro about your journey especially within your professional career but I want to know what a young Neil was like so if you don't mind telling us a little bit about your upbringing. Sure so I was born in Edinburgh theoretically well not even theoretically but I was conceived in France my parents lived in the south of France for several years they were both doctors, so studying their sort of last years um, into their 30s, and my older sister was born there. And when my mum became pregnant with me, they moved back to Scotland. And I was born in Edinburgh, lived there for two weeks, and then we moved to Glasgow. Mum was from Ghana and dad from Aberdeen, and they'd moved around. They'd, they met in Ireland, and I'll come back to that, but they'd lived in Birmingham and then, as I say, in France, but obviously finally settled in in Glasgow and that's where I spent the next 18 years. I've got two sisters, one elder, one younger. There's only, we're consecutive school years so there's only a year and a half between each of us or so. Uh, so we were quite a tight family because of that in you know many respects we were all kind of doing the same things at the same time and yeah we had we had an interesting time in the 80s did a bit of research when I uh, was on um, Black and Scottish, the BBC uh, documentary. And I was curious about a couple of things because I was going on and I thought I better find out something. I've had some questions that I never answered for myself. And I discovered that in, I think the, uh, there was a census in 89. I think they happened in the ninth year, the decade or something. But in 89, there were only 5,000 Afro-Caribbean or Afro-Caribbean descended people in the whole of Scotland. And we obviously made up four of those so my mom and my three sisters theoretically <laughs> so you know we made up quite a large percentage of the the afro-caribbean population of scotland <laughs> at the time for one family <laughs> and as i discovered from that documentary and meeting some of the people on it the experiences we all had separately all these different pockets of black or mixed scottish people uh, they were all quite similar we we were sort of the only person of our color in the place that we lived and I don't know I, I suppose we we became very Scottish because of that most of us and adapted in that way so yeah growing up was a really great experience I mean I uh, have only good memories about growing up in Scotland. That's so lovely and I totally it resonates with me so much we grew up just outside of Hull and we were the only black family in our town we still are yeah that's true we still are but it's just it's really nice but also it's quite when you look back I think this element of assimilation it was I don't know whether it was conscious or whether it was just kind of reactive to the environment but I look back and think I had a really really like a whole upbringing you know you know Friday night you know some you know sometimes it gets the chippy and you know just I suppose just everything about our life was very like just like our surroundings apart from I'd say the food my mum would always cook 
that, that, that she was always in the kitchen and the food and the smells and it worked. She was renowned for it. Even when, when like our friends would come over, we have a really good family friend that didn't live too far from from us, and she would just be like, "I watch mum cooking tonight," and just just expect like you know just just the smells to hit her. And, Suppose that was the only element of our where I look back and think you know maybe there was other things like maybe my, my mum would obviously be quite she'd obviously tell us things in the morning like you know affirmations as we even know them now and you know tell us you've got to work harder and all those things were well, little things but I do think this element of assimilation was quite big and we were very British in terms of our life like day to day but there were hints of Ghana mm-hmm. throughout I think that's how I see it anyway would you agree Julia would you think it's slightly different no, yeah, I'd agree. I think my mum, and I think from what I've heard you, because I, I, that's when I first came across you, really, because I had didn't I missed the 2016 Sky Arts documentary, but I saw mm. Black, and British, Black and Scottish that was it in 2019, I think. But it was yeah. brilliant um, because it was just it was so powerful and needed to say, look, there are Black Scottish people, <laughs> and there's loads of us. Yes, there might be common threads, but there are also these like really unique narratives and it was just it's just brilliant and I think it's been put back on iPlayer if people want to, to watch it it's still available but yeah my mum always said that she sort of like tried to blend what was good in both cultures to help because yeah uh, and you mentioned that documentary and also in a, a radio program just of how strong both cultures seem to be in your upbringing and how your parents seem to embrace each other's like you mm. mentioned that your dad's quite a good cook uh, of different Ghanaian dishes <laughs> and would go to different events in traditional Ghanaian clothing. It's like, it's awesome. I love, I love the sound. Of I it. love that. Yeah, I think it was interesting. Actually, a couple of the interview type things I've done before, it's been one of the things that's come out most strongly that people have reacted to. And obviously when you're growing up, you're living your life, you don't really know what people will find particularly unusual or different or surprising about how your life is. So it was pretty interesting. People really reacted to the fact that, you know, my dad got super involved in Ghanaian culture and was very interested in it and not just interested in like, oh, he likes to eat the stuff. He actually learned how to make it. And I can understand the having heard heard people's responses to it. I can understand why that uh, seems, you know, possibly unusual or quite exciting and interesting. For me, obviously, it was just life, you know. Dad did most of the cooking in our house and he loved the Ghanaian food that my mum had showed him how to make. And so he made it, you know, and uh, he does still now. He's always got lots of Ghanaian food in the freezer. I mean, he makes huge batches and then, you know, pulls them out whenever you go home. He makes like fish stew and uh, oh. corned beef stew. Uh, he's really, he's, he's good at jollof. My mum would always uh, kind of make fun of him for measuring the ingredients instead of just using a cup. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, I guess jollof can't, you, you know, you can screw it up jollof. So yeah. if you can get the yeah. measurements exactly right, you know, it's probably sensible to do that. But obviously if you've been brought up making it, <laughs> you're just like, okay, that's, that's that, that seems about right, you know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so he sounds amazing. Your dad sounds absolutely incredible. He's a pretty interesting guy, you know. So yeah, I've mentioned my parents met in Ireland. He was supposed to go to South Africa, but instead it ended up in Dublin. Uh, he was doing his elective at medical school, where you go away for three months. Or I'm sure Julie, you'll know. 
and he was due to go to South Africa, but he had a white South African friend who said, you know, it was in the 70s and he was like, well, the apartheid there, it's going to be really painful for you to see what's going on and I don't recommend you do it. So last minute he decided not to go. Uh, so he had to find some alternative and, you know, he was going to go halfway across the world into a different hemisphere, into a completely different culture and so on, but ended up, you know, without too many options because he changed his mind so late on. So he went to Dublin and my mum had come from Ghana when she was 17 to London, first of all, to finish her studies, then had moved to Trinity College in Dublin to study medicine. And, you know, she was still there that summer and... You know, she, he walked into the canteen in the teaching hospital, I think it was, and his first famous words to her were, you don't look very Irish. Um, and at the time, my mum, she would have been, I mean, you think of if I was saying there was 5,000 Scott, you know, Black or African people in Scotland in the 80s, you can imagine in the 70s what it was like. But funnily, she had a, she developed a bit of an Irish accent and at the time, the phone operator would, you had to say your surname or your name to be put through. And she used to joke about having an Irish surname and so on, or having Irish uh, grandparents or something because she had an Irish <laughs> accent. So I, I guess, you know, if looking back then, if you think my mum was 17, 18, when she moved to first the UK or the British Isles in, in, in Ireland, then this sort of process of assimilating culture started very early for her. And then my dad would have been... I think they met, they must have been early 20s. And it's funny now, you know, I'm 35. And obviously when you're growing up, you don't really know what it means. Tw being 20 something seems quite old. Like when your parents met and they say like, oh, we're 24 or whatever. You're like, whoa, that seems like ages away. But now if I look <laughs> back to when I was that age, you think, wow, you know, meeting under those circumstances, uh, you know, my dad won't have met too many non-white people in his life or certainly african descended people up to that point but yeah they you know fell for each other very quickly and i guess the rest is history <laughs> i love that yeah i love that out of like possible disappointment of not going to south africa like something so beautiful came out of it like that's just karma isn't it? that's just destiny i think that's good i believe in all that stuff as well people get really annoyed with people because i'm so into it was meant to be it was meant to be but yeah that was definitely meant to be if, if there ever was anything that was meant to be that's amazing yeah a lot of irony as well that he was supposed to go to an african country um <laughs> yeah. and we'd have met tons of african people and south africans and so on black people but he ended up going to ireland and meeting like the one <laughs> the one <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know you talk about destiny and so on but you have to imagine that he was maybe uh had prepared himself for meeting african people uh because he was that's where he was going and he was attuned to it maybe or maybe he was more sensitive to it. as soon as he saw her he was like ready to have this experience of meeting somebody from yeah. from africa so these things yeah that's how they go they you don't really know where the where the sort of ingredients come from but they just fall into place and they had a really you know uh, like I say we had a really great family life and they didn't have as far as I know too many issues around being um, you know mixed relationship at that time 
if they did, it's not something they really mentioned. So, you know, I don't, don't think it came up too often. But, you know, their families were both very uh, accepting. And I think that's the, the main part. Uh, if you have some resistance within either family, then that's where problems can arise. But if the families get on board, then, you know, it's all love. And, you know, you can build something pretty, pretty cool. It comes across a lot in terms of preparing for today. I came across, because you, you sadly lost your mum uh, in 2013 and um, you mentioned the post parents of doctors and often when doctors pass away there's a, a journal called the British Medical Journal or the BMJ mm. there's a, such a moving obituary that your father wrote about your mum mm. so if I meet a man that describes me in such terms like it's just it's beautiful you know you your dad described your mum as supreme I hope you don't mind me saying this but um, no please do Supreme, I'm sure you know this as well, but a supreme problem solver and motivator who excelled as a wife, mother, sister, aunt and friend. just thought it's just so beautiful, obviously in difficult circumstances because your mother was only 60, so very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, so it, I just, it's, it's nice that you grew up in such a loving environment with an, in it fully embracing who all parts of each other's identity. And that was maybe, do you think that helped shape your identity and, and your kind of grounding in that because you're very clear that you're you know Ghanaian Scottish or you, you have a special term for well, not Scottish because you've <laughs> been in Aberdonian so what is it that you you say? Uh, Gan Aberdonian. That's it. <laughs> yeah uh, you know I, I, I came up with that Tiger Woods said he was Calvinasian or something at some point um <laughs> and he mixed because he, he's got a lot of different heritages Tiger Woods <laughs> I, I thought it was quite funny um so and I you know it, it kind of the two words lend themselves to being linked together <laughs> uh but yeah so uh my mum was a powerful person I think uh you know she, yeah she died when she was 60 but uh, so I I was 28 when she died and I think the way I look at it is that I was pretty fortunate to have 28 years. I think if you, you know, obviously you're, you're always going to miss a parent. Um, I think maybe particularly a mother, but 28 years of having her influence is, you know, a lot of people, if they had her influence for a year or a week or as a doctor maybe she treated them and uh, you know they got to know that way then I'm sure they came away feeling uh, I don't, you know different about themselves and the world and all that kind of stuff she was um, a very principled person and uh, just very loving and fun and what, what's interesting uh, she so she died at uh, 60 but she had a condition called Beche syndrome from I mean, it's a it's an autoimmune, quite a rare autoimmune illness, a bit similar to ME, I suppose, or something like that. Uh, although it's difficult to really compare it to anything. And she started showing signs of that when she was in her late twenties, and it it affects you in just tons of different ways, mainly fatigue and um, uh, sort of muscle pain, and uh, you know, just all these like little symptoms that you would get with other things, but they just your body's just attacking itself. It's uh, one of these things. So I think you know, as much as she was always going to be an impressive person, she had this condition which obviously changed how that her personality manifested. Um, who would she have been without that illness? 
who was she with it and who what was her family like you know she ended up being uh, confined to her bed most of the time in her last couple of years and so my dad ended up being a carer and what would he have been like who would he have been had he not you know evolved into a carer but you know for all the the fact that obviously she she died early um, sadly not really because of the illness but because of the medication she was taking was so strong that it caused a cancer which you know was the the thing in the end and you know you treat the symptoms and often uh it's it creates something worse than the the original problem but for all yeah all the illness and the fact that she died early you can't really separate that from like you say who I or my sisters or my dad have become it's such a uh an imposing part of our lives and upbringing and again, like I said before, it's just our life. We don't didn't really think too much about it. But on reflection, it obviously had a huge influence. Um, but I think mostly a positive one, really. Sometimes these challenges can can help you to become, you know, more of yourself or more fulfill more of your potential, or whatever it is. And you just hope that if you have to confront these kind of things, then that's what it ends up doing for you. So in our case, I think, you know, the way our mum raised us, I think she gave us all the tools we needed, preparation for the fact that she might not live till, you know, she was in her 90s or something. And it meant that even though she's not still here, she, you know, very much still is because we're such an embodiment of the teachings that she gave us. You know, it was very, uh, very potent education we got from her. <laughs> Well, I think it, it speaks volumes. You said she came here when she was 17. Was she here on her own? Um, she was here on her own. Her, her dad that? died just after she came as well. So, and uh, he, he was in a car accident. So he was very young. And then there was like a, you'll know, sort of the civil unrest in Ghana that went on in the 70s. So her mum had to move to, I think she went to Liberia. Uh, and they basically weren't in touch anymore and um, you know our siblings started coming to the UK as well to study and so on and it was uh she she had to she similarly I suppose you know lost her dad at a young age and maybe that's why she was so keen to sort of the way she she educated us was maybe with that in mind that you have to as early as possible develop a sense of self and a sense of uh, self-sufficiency and so on so that because you never know what's going to happen and yeah so when she came over she she had to she was the eldest of six so you know did a lot of looking after her siblings as well after that point so that's I mean yeah she sounds incredible and you know to have a family and um, she specialized in gastroenterology so really kind of um, demanding speciality and yeah so you it, it, she sounds like an amazing, incredible woman, and it, it sounds like a blessing to have her as a mum. Yeah, so it, it's it's great that you had you, you've got that influence, and she said it will live on because it, it lives on in you. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I love also how you have shared that your well your your father or your family have started up a foundation in a name. Um, so that's the Dr. Nana. Is it sorry? I've, Dr. Nana, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you set up a maternity hospital in rural Ghana. Was that a, a shared dream that your parents wanted to do together and then your dad's gone on and done it in her memory? 
Not really. Um, he just uh, he retired just a year before she died. Dad is a public health doctor, and uh, he was, you know, very prominent in Scottish public health scene and still writes papers and so on. Uh, so I think he felt young to be retiring. He was kind of retiring partly to spend more time with mom and obviously she died shortly after. So he still had a lot of energy left and a lot to a lot to give. And he has a he wanted to maintain his relationship with Ghana, which, you know, I suppose speaks volumes about uh, how his relationship was with mom and how they integrated their lives. And he just thought, well, uh, let me find something I can do. And, you know, sometimes the pieces fall into place, the opportunities, you speak to certain people and then the idea starts to form. I, I, just as with you guys and the podcast and after release and everything, it, it won't, like you say, it's not like it starts with one plan of like doing something, the final product. It's like, okay, I want to keep doing stuff. I, I want to keep my relationship with Ghana. I speak to this guy. He says this area needs it, this. And I'm in Ghana and then, you know, you the, the path lays itself out and you either take it or you don't, you take a different one, but uh, he took it and um, yeah, they built this maternity unit using this advanced method of local uh, building, using uh, clay and all the locals working on it. And so it created a lot of jobs and, you know, they hope to just keep helping us in whatever way they can. But it means my dad's out, or pre-COVID was out there three times a year. And uh, I mean, he's been there way more times than I have now. He's been there. I mean, my mum didn't go back to Ghana uh, for something like 20 something odd years after she came across for the first time. And then between then and when she died, she went back a handful of times. But, you know, my dad's been there now. Oh, just, geez, he's there all the time. So Does he speak tree? Or any other no, he. I mean, it's funny. He speaks he speaks French fluently, as did my mom, because they both lived there. And he, he has a a knack for Latin languages, so he speaks Spanish pretty well. And for a while, spoke German, but I don't know how his German is these days. <laughs> but when my mom was trying to teach him Fantes, so we're okay. uh, Fantes. Uh, she he just you know the the difference between Latin languages and Ghanaian languages is very much a. Uh, um, language based on uh, the nuance of sound and uh, the Ghanaian yeah. tonal, yeah. yeah. So he just couldn't really wrap his head around that part of things, uh, which was always the um, the subject of a lot of fun when he tried to, <laughs> he just couldn't uh, could ever just get the, the way it was to sound. So all their family found it really funny when he was uh, trying to speak Fante, oh, but- um, Do you speak, do you and your sisters speak Fante? No, we, you know, when we were younger, we would have understood it. I mean, I, I don't know if you're the same, but we, uh, getting told off was always the easiest oh, thing yeah. to understand. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Certain things in tree <laughs> perfectly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to learn, but yeah, my teacher laughs at me because I can say the insults, or, and I know when I'm talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we could do that part. Um, and I went when I was 24, I think, or 25. I went to teach in Ghana for a few months, and wow. I found that uh, I was living in a, I was teaching near Kumasi, so uh, they were speaking tree there rather than Fante. And the, the differences are 
subtle but quite specific in how you pronounce things but I, I found I suppose when you're young and you pick up a native language like that and then you don't speak it you're predisposed to hearing it um, so by the time I was three months there by the time I was leaving I was quite getting into the flow of at least particularly understanding it but also speaking it trying not to take on too much of a tree accent because I wanted don't want don't want my family to <laughs> <laughs> think I was switching switching over but um, uh, yeah I, I, you know it's it's a really cool language and I mean all the Ghanaian languages 52 of them or 53 or 54 however many I was always fascinated by that as a kid. First yeah. time I heard that, I was like, well, what do you mean there's, everybody speaks English, and but they all speak one of 52 other, 54 well, other languages. Yeah. Two or three other ones, because like tree, most people speak tree, but then, you know, mm. they'll have error, whatever, you know, as well. It's it's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, it puts us to shame in terms of like language. Yeah, definitely. I also think I took it for granted with my, because my mum, obviously, I think my mum speaks about four languages and, I used to, especially, and this sounds awful now because I'm so pro, like, pro languages and pro, like, being yourself and I'm so proud of my culture, but I used to get so mortified if my mum would speak Ghanaian or Twee in public or with my dad or around my friends. I'd be like, mum, you know, it'd just be like, can you speak properly? I know that sounds awful. Like, what Mm -hmm. is properly? You know, it's just, it makes me cringe thinking about it now. Because I just think, God, she came to the UK, learned English or spoke English, you know, climatised to even Yorkshire English, which is even more abstract to the English that she'd learned at school. And she speaks like four languages as well. Like it's, it's incredible. It should be something to be, or should have been something I celebrated when I was younger. But again, growing up in a seaside town outside of Hull, I was just so like wanting to fit in and be like, just be seen as normal. Like it was one of the, it's, it, I look back and think, I cringe now and think that that was my mindset back then because it's something so powerful. It's, so, it's such a skill, isn't it, Mangajo? So. Yeah, I guess, I, I guess kids, you know, we just want to, uh, we don't want to stand out too much most of the time. You yeah. just want, uh, you don't want to give people something that they might use against you as well and you know that that's uh as a kid no matter where you're from I mean that's always the case so it's understandable but yeah as you get older certainly you know my cousins a lot of my cousins I have a lot of cousins on my mom's side a lot of them went to school in Ghana so they sort of were either born or raised primary school maybe in London or England and then went to Ghana for high school so they have a much more developed understanding of the language and you know, I, I do envy their their ability to slip into uh, sort of being Ghanaian, let's say. Uh, and language is such a, an enormous part of sort of assimilating into a culture uh, because it's not just about the words you speak and so on. It's about if, you, if you're around people speaking Twee or Fante or whatever, you you see how much it influences how people are, like how they are towards each other. You know, I've always found Ghanaians to be, certainly fanties anyway, to be just laughing all the time and just, you know, hugging and this sort of really vibrant personality. And you can see how the language helps with that. Yeah. And the way that Ghanaians speak is, I think it's been hugely influential in me. So many proverbs and like... Uh, turns of phrase and metaphors for life and all this kind of stuff and obviously that comes 
from the language and the way people mm-hmm. tell stories and so on. So it's not just the words you speak, but the culture is sort of embedded in the language. So if you can learn the language, you unlock the culture and then you're like, whoa, this is pretty awesome. You know, all this stuff that is in there that you can't really get unless you you have the code of language. <laughs> I love that, the code of the language. You make me want to learn Twee now because I did start and then I it just got, like you say, it's, so I speak Spanish. So I thought I'd be really good at speaking Twee. That's how cocky I am. Um, and I just thought it was so abstract and yeah. just very, it was, it was so frustrating because I think, I don't know, I think my expectations were basically were that it would be the, the same methodology and, and like learning vocab will lead to sentence and structure would lead, to, and it was totally different. So yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm motivated now. I feel like I should um, pick up those um, tree classes for sure. Well, I think yeah. you just need to go there because uh, it's yeah. so it's much quicker to pick it up if you're there because it's not really a written language in that sense. Mm. And learning it from writing is the, obviously the alphabet's different. So it's difficult to learn it from a written, like, like you try to learn a Latin language. It's really just about hearing it and knowing, getting into the, the pace of it. And it was quite quick to pick up once I was there. And I was hoping that, you know, I'd come back and 10 years later, I'd still feel it. But I guess I don't know. I haven't had any chance to really test it out. But we'll see you next time I'm in Ghana, hopefully in the next couple of years. And we'll see if I've got any of it left. <laughs> I'm sure you will. So a next question for, for my side is that it's about your work. It's obvious that you've got this skill to capture people and you've got a real interest in people. Where does that skill or that art come from? Because I think, I think most people can use a camera, but not many people can get what you get out of the camera. So what's your process? How do you sort of pull everything together? Yeah, that's a really tricky question. I mean, I suppose the way I see photography is... The same way I see writing or any kind of expression, that it is uh, based on trying to understand the world better. You know, that's that's what I'm trying to do. And the type of photography that I do is mainly street photography type photography. I prefer to call it field photography because that takes in also, um, it doesn't have to necessarily have people in it or it doesn't have to be in a street. It's it's more about being in a any place and trying to work out what is what does that place mean? How did that place come to be? How what is the what can you learn from the, this the thing that you're looking at? And then how can you put it into a frame where you can then express what you're understanding from what you're seeing? to somebody else effectively, or even, you know, to remember it for yourself. Can you take a picture that encapsulates some kind of understanding that you've, you're developing from looking at something? Uh, I think people are the most interesting aspect of that. But, you know, buildings also obviously have traces of people in them. And it's interesting to see how people react to around buildings or, you know, I've taken pictures in a zoo before with animals and what's a zoo, what does a zoo mean? And what, what are people like within, what, what can you learn from what we're doing? <laughs> you know, what are we all doing? We're all walking around. And during last year, obviously, I think it's a question that a lot of people are probably asking themselves, like, what, what is going on? What are we all doing with our lives? What is mm. the world? How do we all function as, because this virus obviously 
traveled across everywhere so yeah that my I think the the actual fact of it of taking a photograph to try and express that is almost incidental when I write it's about the kind of same thing even when I play the violin and when I play violin it's probably the same thing there as well it's a sort of desire to try and understand things because I want to understand myself better and I think and how I fit in and the two things work together by understanding how other people are you can obviously take parts of that and try to understand how you can relate to them or who you are I, I suppose yeah the f- taking pictures in itself part of it's just I'd say practice but more like habit like you just the way I, I, you know, teach photography sometimes and uh, the way I teach to people is that you should be able to take photographs without a camera. The camera isn't the thing that takes the photograph. If you're walking around and you don't have a camera, then you should be seeing photographs all over the place. Mm. Um, it's about how you see the world. It's not really about how you photograph it. And then the trick is obviously to to work out how you can see something and then get your hands and body to work quick enough so that you can turn it into a photograph and you know that's obviously just practice but behind that is this uh, desire to try and deconstruct the world a little bit and just see things all the time and I think that there was a moment or a point where I felt like that happened where I became a photographer I didn't feel like one for a long time and I, I was a bit uncomfortable with even calling myself that even when that's what I was doing but there was a point when I kind of had this realization that that's what I was doing and I was just seeing photographs everywhere and you know I, today I walked past a church and I got to a certain point as I was walking past it and I was like that is the angle I would take the photograph at and then I kept walking and then that then the photograph's gone right and you just I don't know, you, 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 I guess you impose your, the way you see the world on the world and, you know, it reflects back at you and it changes how you see the world, every photograph you take and you just go through this process, you're walking around and seeing pictures and then you hopefully take a camera and try and, try and convey that to other people so, so that they can kind of experience that at this, mm. as, in the way that you do, but without having to develop the skill of taking the photos or being in the place that you are at that moment. That's amazing. I've never heard anybody talk no, or explain it like that. That's clearly the world, isn't it? I think when you hear other creatives, I've heard um, Farrell Williams talk about how he creates music and he I think he sees shapes, like he, he hears mm. sounds but associate with shapes and colour. But that's fascinating. Then that that's but that's that's you and that's unique. And you know, if you're just walking past and it, the pitch just comes to you there. Yeah, the composition of it—that's amazing. Yeah, I, and I think the uniqueness that you mentioned—that's, uh, I think that's in terms of photography or writing or any any form of expression. That's what you have to find. You know, that's what I tell people. Often people are like, "Well, how can I take photos like that?" And well, you don't really want to take photos like that. You want to take photos like mm. however you take photos yeah. because yeah. potentially what you're taking photos of should be unique I want to know what you how you see the world yeah. I, I want to take like five people and put them in the same square mile and you know see what they come back with and if they come back with the same stuff you're like well that's just what's kind of there but what 
what is your interpretation of that what's interesting about it and uh, everybody is unique and it does lend itself to developing like a life philosophy from it if you approach it that way and it changes your life it changes uh, everything and it's probably why I left law you know having studied for that length of time and so on I think you know, you could look at it as being not a waste so much, but just a strange decision. <laughs> I think a lot of people did when I decided to leave being a lawyer in London and uh, going off to become a photographer. But I felt like I wasn't going to expand my understanding of the world too much if I stayed in that at that desk and writing these contracts for the next 20 or 30 years. And I wanted my life to be what my philosophy was. I wanted it to all be one. I didn't want to be have a job and then and I could find elements of my philosophy in being a lawyer, strangely enough, you know. I was a commercial lawyer contracts for renewable energy projects and this kind of thing and other kind of commercial deals and marketing stuff and the legal side of that. But contracts were my favorite part and I, as much as a lot of people hate sitting down and writing contracts, I really enjoyed the fact that you're basically trying to write a relationship between two people that's, or two parties that's going to last indefinitely, you know, and you, you sit down with them and you negotiate it. You try and work out psychologically what do they really want and what do you really want and what needs to be in this relationship document that you're going to agree. And if you have a dispute, how are you going to solve it? And, you know, you're basically writing down the bones of a relationship. And I enjoyed that part. And I enjoyed sitting down with people and working that out and trying to understand what motivated them and so on. But I think there wasn't quite enough humanity in it for me. It, it does boil down to money a lot of the times or functional things. So, you know, I it was, it was one of many reasons I sort of uh, thought, well, what is, if I could do anything, what what would I do and I'd love to be a photographer actually I'd, I'd love to be a writer and then photography was going to be a secondary thing and then you know the path just fell that way and the cards fell that way and you know it ended up being the the main thing that I've been doing for the last five years. I love how you see the world and how you describe it because you you make the contract sound really like <laughs> do you know what I mean like it, it, yeah yeah and, <laughs> I want to be a lawyer now I want to do contracts <laughs> <laughs> oh, careful what, careful what you wish for <laughs> uh, yeah I just it's fascinating yeah I just love your insights and I, I just because I know you're speaking to us from Bucharest do you mind me asking what, what took you over there and what's it like there right and in some ways I'm very conscious when I travel certain places there's certain places that I don't consider going mm. to as a black woman or as a single black mm. woman things like that but yeah could you are you happy to Tell us about Yeah, um, it's really interesting. I came here 2017 for the first time to photograph the city. I was just starting to develop my film photography practice and I decided to go on Skyscanner and just pick the cheapest place to fly to uh, from Glasgow that was over, I think it was over 500 or over a thousand miles away or something. Um and Bucharest in when I was booking it in uh, February uh, came up and you know I just booked it for three weeks in advance you know uh, I think there was somewhere else cheaper but Bucharest had cheaper hotels so overall the trip was going to be cheaper and I was like okay this is this is you know this is going to be a cheap trip and you're spending money on film and 
so on. So film photography can become very expensive if once you factor all the different costs in and development and so on. So I flew out here. Like you say, I had not had a second thought about Romania maybe in my whole life, other than hearing stuff around Brexit time about, um, oh, you know, just how backwards the country was and how it was going to ruin uh, sorry, not Brexit, but uh, when they were joining the EU, there was a lot of talk when Romania and Bulgaria were joining the EU that it was going to, in 2007, it was going to ruin everything. And there were, you know, uh, people, UKIP people standing at the airport when Romania, the 10 Romanians arrived on the first plane and it was all like talk of gangs and, you know, all this stuff. And, it, you know, I didn't take that stuff seriously, but if that's the only thing that you've heard, then you're obviously like, well, trying to stay as neutral as possible, but it's the only thing I've heard, so maybe I should be slightly weary, I don't know. But, you know, on the plane, I was, I just had no idea. As a photographer, you're quite vulnerable when you're walking around. You're always looking in the direction you're facing. You have, obviously, you can, you put your camera to your eye, you're closing one eye a lot of the time, and you feel quite vulnerable at your back. You're also carrying a camera around, which, you know, if somebody wants to steal it, this is anywhere, you feel a bit of vulnerability. So, you know, I had a bit of additional vulnerability, but... I arrived here and I don't know, people, it was, I don't, it just wasn't, it was just like anywhere else, I guess. It, it reminded me a lot of Glasgow in the 90s, the city. It's quite dilapidated in parts. You could say that in some ways, Romania is a couple decades behind the UK in terms of, you know, it only came out of communism in 1989 and they're building up a democracy since then. And, you know, I think the country's going places, but I just found it a fascinating place and when I'm photographing I stop in coffee shops I love coffee and I try and find the like best coffee places and I'm walking around for up to eight hours often so it's quite a long day so I try and break up and find routes I'm not planning where to walk but the only route I take is between coffee shops usually so I know that I've got a break and I went to a coffee shop on my second last day and met this barista who served me and she asked me about my camera and, you know, we started chatting a little bit and I had one frame left on the camera to use before I could change the role. And I didn't want to, I wanted to change it while I was sitting down. So I was trying to catch her eye and um, to just take a picture of her, but she was running around the coffee shop and so on. So, I, cause obviously I found her very attractive. That's, you know, you know where this is going, but um, I ended up taking a picture of her colleague um, oh. and her colleague, and they were having a cocktail party the next day. Her colleague said, oh, if you're in town for a couple of days, why don't you come to this cocktail thing? It's our fourth anniversary, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, cool, that's great. So I took a picture of her just to use the roll up. And I was a bit disappointed. But then sometimes when you use a film camera, there's a, an extra frame yes. that yeah. you haven't, you know, it might show 38 on the counter, but you roll it forward and it feels like, oh, there's one left. So I rolled the camera forward and there was another frame left and I was like okay well I can't still can't change the role and there's this woman I want to like have an interaction with <laughs> oh this is lovely I was, I was pretty shy at, you know that stage um for various reasons uh I'd come off doing the tv show it'd been very intense I'd been out photographing people as part of a competition I'd kind of become a bit disenchanted with that way of engaging with people but I also thought look you know we you had a nice chat with brief chat with her this is a way to sort of break back into that so I went to the till uh to pay I, I could have paid at the table but I went to the till because she was there mm -hmm. pressed the shutter um 
then uh you know it gave me an excuse to say like look uh i gave her my details and said look i'll if you want, I'll send you the photo, blah, 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 blah. But I'll be at the cocktail party tomorrow night. Maybe we could chat. And went to the cocktail party the next night. We were chatting. We went out afterwards, stayed up till five in the morning, going around all these bars to the latest place we could find open, just chatting, chatting, chatting. And then uh, a couple months later, I found an excuse to go back to photograph and write about the coffee scene. And then um, two months after that, I took an apartment for a month. At the end of that month, we'd got a lease for a year and then at the end of that lease we took another one somewhere else and this is three and a half years later or three years years later still here so all happened very fast and um i think the the funny part about the story is that the photograph i took of her behind the till although the camera felt like there was a frame left there wasn't actually one so while i took this photo it didn't, there was no photo. It was just a click of a camera. It didn't, it, there was no photo in the end. So um, I've always used this as an example of, you know, it's kind of what I was looking for in life that photography would become, it's not like a, a job that's separate to who I am. It's it's actually created my longest ever relationship and uh, the reason why I'm in a country and the whole my whole life as it is now was really driven to this point by first of all going to there to take photos then taking a photo of her and then you know ending up staying here and then from here I got some good photos and then started traveling to other cities in Europe and then traveled to 12 in the end and you know ultimately we'll be printing a book hopefully this year supposed to be last year but just uh, timing wasn't uh, the best um of uh, European cities and you know I based myself here and traveled around doing that so it's pretty surprising to me if you told me five years ago ten years ago that would have ended up in Romania I wouldn't necessarily have been surprised but I would have been kind of bamused I would have been like really okay well I could see that but I don't know how that's how what road that's gonna take to me to get there but yeah so I ended up here and here I still am and you know, I was always flying back to the UK to work and so on, but obviously last year that hasn't happened. So I've kind of just, I don't know, but become quite comfortable here. I can't stop smiling. I'm like a Cheshire cat. That is the most gorgeous. It's like a fairy tale for the digital age. I'm, I'm loving it. How gorgeous is that? It is a yeah, it's pretty, man. But then hearing how your parents met as well. Yeah, true. Very true. That kind of like it's not it's in, in some ways not surprising at all it's in the dna absolutely <laughs> yeah. oh i love yeah. that so you traveled 12 cities across europe did you say yes yeah and obviously had your amazing insight in terms of visuals photographs the city the structures etc do you have a favorite if, and if so why or which one different places for different reasons i suppose uh, lots of favorites but in different categories i traveled to 13 strictly speaking i traveled to 12 within the eu and then the 13th was istanbul and the book i'm going to put together is about cities in the eu hence uh, the 12 but istanbul the 13th istanbul is just bananas amazing ridiculous place it's just so huge and densely packed and culturally so really you know they have really significant religious presence but a very really significant 
secular part to it as well. This huge river that cuts through the middle of it, these ferries that go across. And I mean, the only place I could compare Istanbul to that I've been is like New York. It's something as mad as that. Then the call to prayer happens and, you know, just this haunting noise everywhere you go in the city. It's just an amazing place. Food's great. It's just uh, the sunsets and everything. What a, what a city that is. Um, but then on the other hand, like I loved Helsinki. Like it's really, I don't know, just a funny little city with little <laughs> quirks everywhere. And the architecture is quite interesting and it's really grey and it was quite damp when I was there and a bit cold. I like how, the way the language looks on signs and things. And yeah. it's a very functional Northern European type city. Uh, but the kind of place I thought, well, I could live here easily. But then over to like Rome and... Paris and those kind of cities, just gorgeous, luxurious, elaborate, I mean, preserved, and you just feel the history when you walk around. Yeah. Um, it, it's difficult to to pick one. They're, they are so special in their own way. There's so much history in all of them. And also, there's a lot going on now, you know, and everywhere. Mm. Uh, all of them are visually very interesting. Zagreb was incredible to photograph. Oftentimes it's the way the people are. Bucharest I love photographing because a lot of people are still, you know, about 20 years behind. There's a lot of people who didn't really change since the 80s. So you get a lot of people wearing the same clothes and uh, a lot of older men and older women wearing just really you know, their nice Sunday coat type idea and mm. uh, they all wear fur coats in the winter and you just walk around seeing these real fur coats everywhere and these older ladies in little groups with these hats with flowers on and stuff and oh I just I mean it's uh it is such a pleasure being here and seeing all that stuff I just love it. You're definitely meant to be a photographer. The way you talk about everything, I'm, I'm desperate to want to travel to all of those places now. <laughs> and I'm like looking now, like investing on a decent camera and starting to get some training because it just sounds, you see the world in a really beautiful way. It's lovely. We look it's forward just... to the book coming out as well. So keep us posted so we can share that as well. I will do. It's been a bit of a labour of love. And yeah, but I'm really hoping that it's going to be the first of a few that I do in the next two years because I've got all this work backed up because last year was going to be the sort of publication year, but I uh, decided to delay it just so I could, you know, with exhibitions and things and you want to be able to share the work yeah. um, in the best possible way. And I'm a very much a, an offline kind of person, which is partly why I film, uh, photograph on film. Mostly I like physical things and I believe in the importance and the physicality of photographs being printed and held in books and so on. So, you know, I'm very reluctant to do any kind of online exhibitions and that kind of stuff, although I see totally see the need for them. But if I can avoid it, then it's part of the whole, you know, the whole experience for me to for people to walk into the room and to physically experience the, the images. Amazing. That sounds super cool. An exhibition. That sounds so, so cool. But no, definitely let us know when the first book is out and we'll definitely push the promo on our channels as well. So I think it's come to the time where we ask the melanin magic question, which is, what are your hopes and dreams for Black British culture in the next five to ten years? And do you have any insights or ideas on how we're going to get there? Yeah, this is a, I mean, this question, I've thought about it a lot. And I think that the next five to 10 years is a tricky one. I think it, the next five to 10 years is maybe 
can be explained by my longer term desire, which would be for basically black British culture not to exist in the sense that it has become just part of, it's just described as culture or there's no, there's no um, category delineation between what's black British, what's British. Even I think for me that the reason I say that is partly being mixed. So I am down the middle, DNA tested, half white, half black, half Northern European, half West African, like genetically those exact 50-50. There's no sort of great variation. There's maybe 2% Indian or something, but you know, all that little bits that come in. So for me, it's always been a question of what I am and what category am I supposed to fall into? Even being British is another question. I would see myself as Scottish. That's how I think a lot of people see themselves as Scottish first or just Scottish full stop. And, you know, technically, yes, you're British as well, but delineating all these things is, is I don't know, it, it's just for some people, I appreciate the need for it as well, because you, you need, everybody needs things to hold on to. You need identities and ways of describing it and communities that you can identify with. But I think uh, ultimately, you know, we want race to sort of evaporate into the uh, historical things so that we can focus on culture, heritage, ideas in a more sort of nuanced way, a, a less categorical way. And I think that, how do we get there? I think a lot of that comes from teaching people how to understand themselves better. You know, to say that you're not, you don't have to reach being black British you know you can find you can find that that's where you fall into and that's totally fine but you want to start with well who I am who my parents were who my family is where how did I arrive in this how did I come to be here give people better tools to understand that about themselves Um, and then ultimately you know they'll see other people in that way and you stop seeing this differentiation between these superficial aspects of how people look, let's say, or where they might have uh, any assumption that you have about somebody because of what they look like. And I think, yeah, being half Scottish, half Ghanaian, my mum was religious, uh, Methodist, Christian. My dad was an atheist. I've, I'm sure there's other personality traits that they had that were quite different as well and so on. So I've grown up with a lot of these uh, separation so I could never go like okay we're like a we're a Ghanaian Christian family living in Scotland or something that I couldn't ever find just one thing that I could decide to be without excluding something pretty significant about say either of my parents or where I was growing up if I was to say that I was black then where does my dad fit and how does my I can't I can't just say that I'm black or so you know, so you, you get to the point of saying, well, I'm, I'm neither, I'm not one of anything. I, I, can't, I can't categorically say I'm one of anything. And I've been through phases of being on both sides. Um, I played violin uh, since I was six, and but then got into hip hop pretty, in a pretty big way when I was in my teens. And, you know, what were people expecting of me? Uh, school say like I had cornrows 
and then I'd get up and play the violin. It's not, you know, it, I, I, then I had to uh, understand how those different parts of me fitted. Mm. And I think it can be hard in the short term because you, you do maybe feel a bit alone, but as you get older, I've found it's been really beneficial to feel incredibly comfortable with who I am, mm -hmm. uh, with who other people are, trying to see and understand, not trying to say somebody is one thing or another, just trying to understand who they are as an individual person. And this way, people can find role models wherever they want to find them. They can, they can become folk musicians if they're like, uh, even if they're from some country that never had that style of music or whatever, and they're not categorized as being some kind of like black folk music or something. It's just, I understand as well that all of this is pretty new in this country, say in, in this country, in the UK and uh, the mixing these things. And it might, I think by the end of my life, if this was happening more, I'd be pretty happy that I, I think kids at school these days, they're already starting to, to change into this a little bit better. And one of the big reasons for this is because my I have three nephews and a niece and another nephew on the way this year. And my sisters are both married to white Scottish men. So they're all light skinned actually. Two, two of my three nephews have red hair and the third one has blonde hair. They've got like my sister's Ghanaian nose, but like they've also got some of her curls and stuff. And, oh, you know, I look at them and think, what will the world see them as? Mm. What will they, how will they be able to say, well, I'm a quarter Ghanaian? We're at this point where the same mixed relationships and people look like me say, so you've got a fair, it's fairly obvious, you know, it's fairly clear, but we're, we're obviously going to then have a next generation who it's not as obvious. And then what, what do we do with them? Do we say that they're what 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 are we calling them racially? What without sort of diminishing one part of who they are, and the only way to do that is to understand their culture and their heritage, not their their color and mm. their their so-called race. You know, I think that's why it's become a sort of a. It struck me very hard once I saw them growing up, and I thought, well, you know. It can't be that people just think you're white or that you have to only be that to the world. There has to be a way that we develop into a place where they can play Ghanaian instruments or music or something without being accused of appropriation somehow. Or that, and then if they can, then why can't somebody else? Like it has to, we have to somehow get beyond it for my nephews and nieces to, to be able to fulfill their full potential of who they are, I think. But it's complicated and people have different needs at different times. And it's a question of moving towards it over the long term, over generations, really. But I think it's really the, it starts with helping people to understand themselves better, where they come from, the genesis of who they are. And, you know, eventually, maybe in 100, 200, 500 years, people will look back on race as being some kind of mad thing that we had for a while in the same way that it it was created as like uh, almost out of thin air as something uh, to categorize people with. But uh, yeah, I think we're, I think we're getting there. I think we are, you know, 
Um, my one concern is maybe that the internet slows us down a bit because there's so much on there that there's a need to categorize things more in order to find things. You know, your things are more put into buckets because you, it's so there's so such a big volume of stuff. And we need to work out a way of just making sure that we're not over categorizing people and limiting what who they can reach or what they can become. And that's really the that's really the goal. Gosh, that's a big answer. I'm so I can't wait for so my so I'm married to a Spanish guy called Pepe, and I can't wait for him to listen back to that answer. He will love that because we have conversations about it all the time. Should we have kids? What you know, what com- complexities will arise with that? Um, but this element of understanding, he's going to absolutely love that answer. So thank you for, for, for sharing that and going into so much detail. I really loved the crux of it. To me, what you were saying is that everyone should have the freedom to be who they are and not have assumptions or expectations placed on them based on the colour of their skin. So even in terms of your interests and things like what you pursue and, you know, or even what you go into, yeah, and and it'll be a wonderful world isn't it that that's what martin luther king was saying not to be you know he doesn't want his kids judged on the color of their skin that they have all any and all opportunities afforded to them that anybody else has and you know that was in the 1960s still hasn't quite yet been realized but maybe mm-hmm. we're a bit closer to that so yeah i love i love what you yeah thank you for that i'll add a, a little bit that living in romania there aren't many non-Romanians living here it's got a very very small uh, immigrant population so almost everybody is Romanian and that's like largely white but there are some darker skinned Romanians from the Roma community or Turkish heritage and that kind of thing. Living here has shown me I've had funny experiences where people don't have a concept of what race I am they don't attribute a race to me Sometimes they think I'm Roma gypsy community because I've got darker skin and they they ask me if that's the, they just think I'm Romanian because why would a non-Romanian be in the country? <laughs> but most of the time it's, uh, it's a sort of neutral, you know, approach because they don't, they don't have all these ideas of what race is meant to be and how you're meant to, how if you're meant to be careful with saying something or not, or they just... The, 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 my favourite story is that this, I've been going to this bar for a long time and got to know the barman and I hadn't been for a while, went there and he said to me, oh, you're looking great. Have you just come back from holiday or something? And it was meaning that I looked tanned or he said, he said, you always look like you've just come from holiday, <laughs> like being in holiday, like you've just come, <laughs> like you've just come from Cyprus or something. <laughs> And I was like, you know, in the UK, that would be a, a, maybe a bit of a weird thing for somebody to say, but he had no idea that I would, I was mixed. He didn't really, he didn't think one way or another about who, what my race was. All he thought was, he was giving me a compliment. He was just like, man, you just look, you look so good and healthy and, you know. And I think it encapsulates how in a society for race almost doesn't exist because they don't have people from other races here, really. Mm-hmm. And so it's changed, changed my my view on it and changed my perspective on it. And, you know, it's we, sometimes you can get very caught up in race. And here people just, they're curious about me. They, they wonder, 
who I am and where I come from. And, you know, I tell them I'm from Scotland and obviously that is like, oh, well, maybe that's what people look like in Scotland. They don't have like a, <laughs> and people do like that, look like this in Scotland, I suppose. There are some of us who do. So yeah, I guess, yeah, I suppose it does exist in the world, but you know, maybe you, everybody has to go through some period of getting used to what race is before we can dispense with it. I think that's like, that's part of it. Yeah, lots and lots to, to think about. But I'm glad that you're enjoying your experiences living in Bucharest. And just out of interest, what do you speak Romanian? Have you? I am not too bad okay. at speaking Romanian. Wow. A lot of people, if you're most people under forty, say speak English, particularly in Bucharest. Oh, okay. But yeah, my Romanian's um, it's quite similar to Italian, so it's it's got some Slavic aspects of the language, but it's mostly a Latin language, oh, a Romance wow. language. So if you speak French, Spanish is quite close in Italian, particularly, then you you kind of can get by with a lot of stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been learning. I've been learning. I'm trying. <laughs> We're reading Harry Potter in Romanian. That's my... <laughs> yeah. I just wondered, like, having these conversations with people around, I just wondered, yeah, like, how quickly you've learned the language, but it, it's helpful. But I, I just love that language doesn't seem to be a barrier to your travels and your experiences either get up and go it's really great yeah yeah that's it so um is it all right just if you'd happy to share how our listeners can get in touch with you or see your work and like what kind of handles do you use on social media sure the main one is probably instagram uh, at scotch.bonnet as in the spicy chili pepper (laughs) only one person has ever messaged me to say they got the joke behind it so I won't say any more but if you get it then thank you for getting it um I'm also on Twitter at Neil Greer I'm not really on there much but uh you know if that's your platform then feel free to hit me on there my website is neilgreerphotography.com other than that Instagram probably the main place to go so we'll look out for the book that's coming out this year and and the would you be hosting exhibitions in the UK as well as in Bucharest or um... yes that would be my aim to launch it in the UK so uh, we'll see once all this covid stuff clears a little bit and what we can do but yeah I'll definitely let you know I'm excited about it it's uh, like I say it's a labor of love so can't wait to get it out amazing we'll be there at the exhibition you know we're stalkers so we're definitely going to get thank you thank you <laughs> well that is it from us today thank you so much to neil for joining us it's been an absolute honor i've learned loads and i feel really motivated so thank you so much for sharing so much of your your life your history and your future etc so it's been great thank you to everybody for listening as well join us again next time <laughs>